0: Welcome to Episode 8 of the Swift Teacher Podcast. One lesson at a time towards... Swift World Domination. Joining us today, we have a very special guest, Fraser Spears. Fraser is the head of secondary school, secondary school at Cedar School of Excellence in Greenock, Scotland. Before that, he was the head of computing and IT, responsible for the school's computer science education and IT infrastructure, which I know also includes managing his uh, JSS, his Jamf software server. And Fraser was uh, very modest in his bio, but he's also responsible for the very first iPad one-to-one deployment in a school in, uh, in the world. So, Fraser, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, it's good to be on the show. Thanks for having
0: me. So, just a little background. Fraser and I met last year at WWDC. Mm-hmm. We were there for the announcement of Swift Playgrounds and got a behind-the-scenes look. And we're gonna. Fraser recently published an article about his first year of using Swift Playgrounds to teach computer science and coding in Swift. So uh, that's why Fraser's on this very timely episode since school is ending, and he just wrote that that article, that blog post. So. Fraser now that we know that you're at uh, the Cedar School of Excellence uh, tell us what you teach
1: well I, I teach computer science to is the equivalent or equivalent of sixth and ninth grade in the US and I also teach a, a course called administration and IT to 10th, 11th, and 12th grade equivalent as well. So I've got some work in senior school, some in the junior part of secondary as well. I'm soon going to be handing over that senior part to a colleague and focusing more on some school administration uh, work that I'm doing at the moment and also keeping the computer science going in the lower years as well. So I primarily think of myself as a computer science teacher, but I've taught uh, little bits of other things from time to
0: time as well. As the same thing, although they shouldn't be. So... I'm going to say, what was your journey to teaching computer science? Well,
1: I, I think your, your point is, is true there, Brian, that many countries where computer science has kind of left the curriculum, um, now that it's coming back in as a kind of political imperative, a lot of places are, are, are treating the idea of coding and the idea of computer science as being the same thing. But I don't I don't really see them as the same thing. And, and one of the reasons why, I think, is because my um degree background is computer science so I first of all uh, got a bachelor's degree in software engineering and then a master's in computer science so I have a, a kind of full academic computer science background um, whereas a lot of even you know when I was at school and and now again a lot of people are being taught by teachers who were formerly teachers of some other subject who converted to be computing teachers at some point in I suppose in the early 1990s or uh, the mid-2010s as well. So that's kind of why I I see a distinction between that, that coding is something that um, a a lot of teachers are tasked to teach, whether or not they actually have qualifications in that area. Um, uh, But computer science in Scotland is a little bit different from other places because in Scotland we never really lost computer science from the curriculum as fully as, say, they did in England, for example, and in some areas of the U.S. as well. So it's it's a little bit different for us here.
0: So you, if I remember correctly, you did not start out as a teacher. You came to teaching from being a computer scientist, correct? I remember hearing that on your out-of-school podcast when you were talking to Jesse Chartier.
1: Yeah, so so my first job out of university was um, I, I was a systems administrator or a coordinator for uh, computer clusters that were attached to the Large Hadron Collider project. So we were deploying those kind of clusters. And that was my first job before uh, joining CEDARS. So, uh, yeah, my background is a little bit different to most people who have gone you know, straight into teaching from university.
0: And before I get to my next question, I want a, a follow-up from way back. I remember when right after Swift Playgrounds was first announced, mm-hmm. uh, you and Bradley Chambers on your out-of-school podcast, the, you had a discussion about... Well, everyone can code. Does that mean everyone can teach coding? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not so sure everyone can teach coding is my personal opinion. What do you think?
1: Well, I suppose the question is, is sort of to what level can people teach coding? I think um, any reasonably experienced teacher could pick up Apple's teacher guides for Swift Playgrounds and for uh, uh, the Learn to Code program and probably do a reasonable class with it. I mean, the, the curriculum is is so well written that it, it would be an achievement to really mess it up, I think. But what my experience of teaching computer science is that um, to be able to remediate students who are struggling or to really stretch the best students requires is those two ends of the spectrum that require a deep understanding of the subject, right? You, you could teach a middling Uh, class to middle ability pupils and everybody's fine but if you if you find yourself with some really strong students that you want to stretch as hard as you can or some students who are just not getting it without that deep knowledge of the subject it's going to be hard to either extend their knowledge beyond what apple's got in the teacher guide or to express the whole idea of computer programming in some other form that makes sense to a student who's struggling with the concepts those are uh, to me that's the real benefit of, of a subject specialist teacher
0: I think it's the the differentiation is starting to crystallize for me. Uh, coding is part of computer science, uh, teaching mm-hmm. that one specific skill. But I guess it's the difference between, you know, maybe everyone can teach coding, but like you just mentioned, to get the stretch in there, especially for those really gifted students, that's the difference between teaching coding and teaching computer science.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, I mean, you could put me in front of an English class and I could read a book with them, right? And we would all read the book fine and everybody would be able to interpret the words. But to really get the sense and the meaning and the understanding and all the references that go along with it, you know, you're really gonna want an English teacher in there. You know, I, I would not do a good job of that, even though I've read, you know, George Orwell or whatever many, many times. Uh, so and I think you, you can make a, a similar analogy. I'm hesitant to make strong analogies between different subjects because I recognize their differences, but I think that, you know, We've had coding come into a lot of Western curriculums, um, a lot of developed country curriculums, um, because people are worried about jobs, right? And I think if you look at any of the narratives or any even articles about the importance of, of coding in the curriculum, um, you only get two or three paragraphs into those articles before you see some point made about jobs, right? Right. And, and I, I really feel that a lot of the imperative to bring coding back into schools is much more about people being worried about the economy and the, the state than whether or not students actually want to do it, you know, or whether or not it actually brings a benefit to their lives. Now, I believe it does but I believe that um, computer science as a subject is worthy of study in its own right. And I'm concerned on two fronts. One that the fullness of computer science isn't getting studied because we're just trying to make everybody into programmers. Um, and secondly, there's it's possible that we could end up in a situation where uh, computers in schools are only available to people who are willing to produce computer programs because one of the things I've seen over you mentioned that one to one iPad program that we've had in school um, and in the seven years we've been doing that, I've seen people shift the goalposts on me several times. And the first time it was uh, you've got uh, iPads are for content creation and you've, you've got to be a producer of content. OK, so after a bit of work, we, we were had the students, you know, creating keynotes, video, uh, audio presentations, essays, books posters, photography, everything. And then people pushed the goalposts again and they said, oh, no, you have to be a producer, not a consumer of technology. I.e., You've got to build a robot with this thing. And and I feel like, you know, that trying to keep computers in schools just to the computer science department is a, is a, a mistake on the other end of the spectrum that's quite easy to be made as well. Wow.
0: That was great insight. So what is your favorite part Uh, about teaching computer science? Um, Well, I I think the the, the bit that I kind of live
1: for is whenever you get somebody who just really gets it, and I I have this sort of theory, and theory is is too grandiose a word for what it is, but it's like a half-baked observation about the world, which is that when you find somebody who is really brilliant at what they do, the materials or the medium that they work in becomes transparent to them, right? And I have a a, a guy I know who's a builder. He built an extension to my house and uh, I, I worked with him quite extensively to get that job done. But it was fascinating to me that for him, like bricks and wood and nails and construction was just as transparent to him. He knew how to work with all those materials to achieve a result in the same way that for me, there's that transparency with code, right? If I want to do something with a computer, it's, the computer's transparent to me. I understand how it works. I understand all the mechanisms of all the things that are possible with a computer. And I can manipulate that whole system to get the result I want. And for me, that's always like the goal that I'm looking for when I'm teaching computer science is to, is to demystify and um, remove the magic from the computer so that students can start to kind of own the system and, and manipulate it for their own ends. Now, not everybody ever gets there, and um, that's true of every subject. You know, some people don't ever manipulate chemical compounds to their own ends either. But for me, that's what I'm stretching for: is to always is to make it so that people have this moment, or sometimes a series of moments, where it's almost like you can actually feel your brain growing in your head. I don't know if you've ever had that experience when you've learned something; you feel something almost physical happens in your brain. And now you can do something you couldn't do before. And and for me, that's I, that was the experience I had in computer science, uh, learning as a, as a undergraduate and as a pupil at school, just these sequences of, oh, now I get this part and now I get that part. And what I'm trying to do as I teach is, is to try and take as many pupils as I can along that path of almost like a path of enlightenment, if that's not too grand a way to put it, but just to go from I don't really understand how this computer works, it's all magic and nothing makes sense, to, okay, now I can make it do this, now I can make it do that. And to realize with computer science, differently from many other subjects, that it's a ladder, right? There's nothing you can skip in computer science that you don't need for the next step of achievement. Whereas in some other subjects, you've got areas of knowledge, some of which don't build on each other. But in computer science, everything builds on everything else to get you to the ultimate goal. And that's, to me, it's quite a different way of teaching than some other subjects. And I think it's important to help students realize that as well. That was a very long answer to a short question. I'm sorry.
0: No, no, but it's a very complex question. Uh, So I'm not surprised you had a long answer. I I have a similar experience of what you're talking about. I had a student that um, he just graduated, but in his junior year, uh, we started our SWIFT journey in my school district, and I was using the, I'm not sure what it's called now, I think it's App Development with Swift on GitHub from Young Bacos. Okay. And I could see him, he was the most gifted student I've had as far as computer science and coding, and I could see him just soaking it all in. And this year, he, he built his own app last year for Little League Baseball in Northeast Ohio for... Trumbull County for coaches to um, track the number of pitches the pitchers are using because there's a pitch rest, uh, pitch number restriction. Mm-hmm. And this year, it, I mean, it was really some calling into databases storing. And this year he created an app for a contest for the business professionals of America. And he, he was the national champion and I could see him. He really did some great things. He was parsing RSS. He was using a uh, Firebase uh, uh, database for back end stuff. Wow. He really did a fantastic job and I could just see him grow every week. He's like, Oh, I, well, I want to figure this out. I want to be able to add this functionality. And I mean, he made a school, he had to make a school app. That was the requirement and it had to have map. So use map kit, but he added a feature in there so that, um, we have a restaurant because we're a career and technical school. Okay. So our teachers could order their lunch right from their iPhones and actually pay for it with a credit card <laughs> right there, <laughs> right from their iPhones. So That's fantastic. He's, Branson, hey, shout out to Branson, BPA national champion in app development. He did a fantastic job. So, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. It's that wow feature when you see them learn right then and there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can take you back to the, I can take you back to the place in time where that happened for me. I remember sitting in an undergraduate lecture, in, it must have been 1996, probably. And I remember it, we were in the, you know, programming 101 class, and the lecturer just he gave this lecture about what it means to have a function that can be parameterized, and he described it like a, a normal, a function without parameters is like a spanner that's fixed, a wrench that's fixed in size but a parameterized function is like an adjustable spanner that you can adapt i mean it still has to be a nut that you want to turn but you can adjust it to any size of nut and you can and it was just at that moment that was what kind of opened up all of computer science to me it seems like a trivial thing but i thought well okay well if you can do that then you can just do anything yeah and that was for me. That was a one. I've stolen his analogy for my teaching for ten years now, and I've I still use that every time I come to that question uh, to describe it like an adjustable spanner. Uh, just because that made so much so much sense for me, and and it made it made everything seem simple after that. But and things hadn't been that simple before that. But it was just that one insight. And to me, that's the kind of beauty of teaching is that with one word or phrase, you can open it up to the open up whole subject to somebody. Uh, but it's just the the art I suppose is getting the right phrase for the right person
0: But I think that you know two follow-ups on that I think that's when we talked about can everybody teach coding or you know computer science? That's what the difference of somebody who really has that content area expertise can really open that up like he did for you with that great analogy mm-hmm. and then second to translate it to what's a spanner like a wrench uh the thing, oh, okay. a tool that you'd okay. use to turn a nut. Yeah. okay, for our US audience. Of course, yes, we've got t- the international s- <laughs> So you are teaching your iPad one to one in your district. Yep. So are you teaching Swift on iOS?
1: We are, yeah. so so we are um all in on iOS, um, both for uh, lower years and upper years, and we've been we've been using Swift playgrounds. You mentioned since we were together at WWDC last year. Uh, we were just waiting for it to come out basically you know uh, it came out with ios 10 in october which in the uk is a little bit after school starts so <laughs> the exact release time is not that well lined up with our school year um so we, we did another unit of work first and then we, we moved into swift playgrounds after that um and we've been doing that this year we did it with two classes um i mentioned this in the article um our what we call first year and second year which would be like seventh and eighth grade in the US. Um, I've been doing Learn to Code 1 and 2 with both of those classes, uh, mainly because it's new and neither class had had the experience. But under normal circumstances, I'm obviously not going to teach the same two books again next year to the same class. So they'll move on to different things next year. But uh, that's what we've done this year.
0: So how does that Swift Playgrounds everyone can co-curriculum, all the tools, the software, everything. Compare to other things you've previously used to teach coding and computer science?
1: Well, I, I really like the the structure and design of the curriculum in Learn to Code 1 and 2. We haven't used Learn to Code 3 yet and, and partly that's because, uh, well, we didn't know what was coming out and it just, Apple just dropped it on us. Um, I, I would say it, it's definitely better than most other curriculums that I have used in the past and, and even better than ones that I've written as well. It's, it's better written than I've, I've done a good job with. Um, the pace, I think, is good. It's it's not too slow. You don't spend too long on any one particular area. But like I said in, in one of my previous comments, everything in computer science builds on everything else. And, and one of the things I keep trying to stress to the students is, look, this isn't a course where you can do a chapter of the textbook and then forget about it. you got to do a chapter of the textbook and then internalize that knowledge to go ahead and do the next chapter and the next chapter. And what I've been really pleased with is that... Um, Nobody seemed to get left behind. We'll, we'll talk more in a little bit about uh, the student response, but I, I didn't find that many people just didn't retain knowledge as they went through. There was enough ex- enough practice and enough uh, reinforcement work to get that into most people's heads. Uh, I was going to mention as well, I, you know, I've taught four different programming languages now in my teaching career, and I've in my computer science experience, I've probably learned at least the basics of about 14 or 15 programming languages. But in, in teaching programming, we've used uh, Visual Basic, Ruby, Python, and Swift in that order. And of, of the first three that I had done before Swift came along, Ruby was by far my favorite. I, I just thought it was a, a great teaching language. And one of the things that Ruby has that Swift has more or less in common with it is a very consistent and predictable uh, language structure and syntax uh, we used we switched to Python most for two reasons. One, mainly because the Pythonista app on the iPad was really great. But secondly, mostly because other schools were doing similar things. And of course, that was <laughs> it's never a good idea to just do what other people are doing because there's a good chance they don't actually know what they're doing in the first place. Um, but I, I found Python to be an extremely poor program language to teach with. I'm not saying it's a bad program language to develop with, but I, I don't think it's a great one to teach with, mainly because... Uh, the idea of having sig- syntactically significant white space is, is problematic for students. Um, and the second thing, which actually I think was worse, is that um, the the library design of Python is very inconsistent. So sometimes you've got things that are are uh, uh, an operation on an instance, sometimes they're a class, sometimes, you know, knowing how to call different bits of the Python library got very confusing very quickly to students that I think um, that was one of the reasons why I was happy
0: to kind of leave it behind. That uh, those are some some great points. Uh, I I've only taught with Swift, so but I can see how that 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 consistency because Swift is so strongly type-safed, would be very important teaching. Maybe that's why you know if you hear a, a lot of veteran developers like Marco Armat who really isn't all that interested in Swift because it seems so restrictive to them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what makes it a great teaching language.
1: Yeah, I I think there, there's there's mo- I can see a way to kind of building more understanding of that for myself. I, I I feel kind of intuitively that Swift is a great teaching language, but I would like to be able to better articulate why I think that. Part of it I believe is its type safety. In that, if a student writes code and the code is um, like one of the problems with, with, with students with the decode is that they sometimes just guess what they're supposed to be doing, as you know, uh, and they don't always think through what they're doing. But what I find w- with a dynamically typed language like, um, like Python or uh, I suppose even Objective-C, you can sometimes get it right by accident. And that's worse. You know, with Swift, because it's very strongly typed and its syntax is quite regular, um, it's very hard to get it right by accident. And if you get it right, you've got it right because you understood what you were doing. And only occasionally do you get it right by mistake. And I think getting things right by mistake is actually a poor experience for young programmers because um, the behavior then is possibly either undefined or it's different to what you'd expect. And it looks right to their mind. It looks right, but it doesn't behave right. Whereas with Swift, what I found more and more is that um, it's easy to get a lot of uh, compile time errors in Swift, and that can sometimes be discouraging for students. But what I encourage them to to realize is that if you clear all those red dots in Swift Playgrounds, there's a good chance your program is going to work, or it's going to be very close to what you expected. Maybe some of the logic will be out of order or whatever, but you won't have something just crash halfway through. And that's one of the things that I think has really helped student engagement is that because of that strong typing they everybody gets working code now and the question then becomes more about well whose working code is the best as opposed to well the good students get working code and the weaker students never get working code which was kind of the experience in a lot of previous computer science classes and I think that makes a big difference to the way students approach the class and they and approach the more advanced things because they've had the confidence to say well okay if I, if I work through this I'm going to get code that runs and then I can decide whether or not it's the right code after that. But having code that just never runs is very, very discouraging to students.
0: And I think that's one of the strengths of Swift is that because it's such a, you know, it's type safe and it's really expressive. I mean, my students, when they they would look at me, it was like, oh, it looks like English. You know, and I've written English for a while, so I can get something up and running. And and we had those uh, same discussions in my classroom. You know, who can write the best code? And then we'd have to define, well, what? makes it best code? Is it that it's the shortest or is it the most expressive? Mm-hmm. And then we had many different parallel and cascading discussions from that, but we'll, which you covered in your uh, article and we'll get to. What has been the most surprising to you in teaching Swift?
1: Yeah, I, I think probably what we were just talking about there, Brian, the idea that um, we now spend most of our time in class having the discussions about like what are genuine computer science topics, right? Such as efficiency, understandability, maintainability, all of these things that instead of just trying to hack something together to get something that works within the time, the fact that there's a a sort of high floor in that most people will get working code, if not everybody will get working code. And then we can say, well, whose code has the best variable names? Whose code is the most time efficient? Whose code is the most memory efficient? Whose code um, is most understandable to somebody who hasn't written the code? And and I remember this year having a, a very protracted debate, I mean, over like multiple weeks with a number of students in one of the classes about whether or not uh, the most compact code was the most desirable code. And, and of course, this is like, you know, 13 and 14 year old boys who are just desperate to show like to compete with each other and see how clever they can be with their code and how obscure they can be and how they can beat each other. And I'm, I just spent a lot of time going, no, I'm not giving you full marks for that because what you've done there is not a desirable goal, right? It's not it's not desirable for you to write your solution to this in two lines when it's actually a properly expressed a 10-line program or something like that. Cramming it all into two lines is not a desirable goal. It's never a good thing. You know, I mean, this isn't the obfuscated C contest, you know, it's not something that we're trying to, uh, the aim of the game is not to be obscure, the aim of the game is clarity and expressiveness, Um, and even if that comes at some cost in performance or compactness, that's actually valuable because, you know, eventually you'll hand, as a programmer, you'll hand the code on to somebody else who's not part of your team, and they will, you know, they will need to understand what you've written. And if you've written the cleverest thing you can think of, then somebody else might not be quite as clever as you.
0: I I think maybe that's that's one of the most surprising things to me and one of the power of their, they call it everyone can co-curriculum, but it really allows us to move past just plain coding, especially in the, you know, I teach high school, Mm -hmm. and we really talked a lot about computer science and you know, how, you know, when you write something too compact, you're not future you. And, and that's part of what you're writing your code. I said, anything you write now, in a year, you're going to look back and say, wow, that was bad. I was going to say, um, Brian Kernan,
1: one of the inventors of the C language, he said that, uh, I'm doing this off from memory, but he said something like, debugging code is 10 times harder than writing it. So if you write the smartest code you can, you are by definition too stupid to debug it. <laughs> I must have quoted <laughs> that about 20 times Uh over the course of this year, to students, to say, look, you can write that code today, right? But if I want you next week to fix that code, you're not going to be able to do it because you won't remember how you did it. You know, so be expressive, use long names, take space, all of these things. But you're right; those are those are software engineering topics. Those are that's not just coding. That's you know about the long term behavior of a computer programmer. And I think those are incredibly valuable things to to learn.
0: And I think that's the real power of their curriculum, especially now that they've added the uh, app development with Swift, which I'll be teaching with next year to my seniors. And it's that we're going to get into some heavy duty stuff and they're going to go to college. My students having a leg up on potentially some other students, um, what will be difficult for my students is trying to find a school that actually teaches Swift around here because most Mm -hmm. of them don't. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see many of them heading out to the West Coast. Yeah,
1: I think one of the things I would like to see with, you know, the next level of discussion about learn to code is like, how much is this actually about Swift? You know, I think in learn to code one and two, you're developing a lot of thinking skills that are not really um, exclusive to Swift, right? So you're learning about absolutely basic computer science concepts like iteration, like selection, you know, all of these things. Um, decision-making, conditional code, all of these things. And I I don't have... Learn to Code 1 and 2 doesn't really lead you into this, but later code uh, or programs might lead you into this where you can realize that these are concepts that you can take from this course and apply them to the syntax of another programming language in a a similar kind of paradigm. Uh, And I think that, to me, that's one of the other differences between computer science education and coding, Whereas co- a coding class can get very locked into the specific technology that is being used for that class. Whereas in computer a computer science education, rightly done, would lead you to believe that if you understand computer programming, you could in the course of a day, you could learn pretty much any computer programming language you want. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the skill then is to learn the libraries and, and become a professional in that way. But the actual syntax of the language is not the most important thing. And I kind of feel like with, with Learn to Code 1 and 2 in Swift Playgrounds, you're, you're learning how to program the, the little puzzle world in the book. You're not really programming iOS as such, uh, which means that you're learning fairly pure computer science concepts, which you could then apply to some other language as well. And I think there's, you know, because you're right, not everybody's going to go to a next stage of education where they're teaching the exact same stuff or, or they're certainly teaching Apple's curriculum or indeed they're teaching Swift at all. Uh, you might end up in a Python course or a C course or something like that, and, and that's okay and I think that has to be maybe my finishing point for uh, kids who are leaving my computer science programs to say look you've done this we've done it in Swift but you could quite easily change to be a Python programmer or a Ruby programmer uh, without too much difficulty and, and just giving people the confidence to be aware of that as well is, is something that's quite important
0: to bear in mind. I know that my some of my students give given me a hard time about Swift and like, well, what about Java? And I said, well, I've done that. yeah You know, I learned Objective-C and I've learned Swift, but one of the great things, you can pick up any other language once you learn these computer science um, topics and, and, you know, programming ideas. But yeah. one of the power, uh, I think, in Swift is that maybe you don't have to because, you know, I I, I went through the entire series – uh, Learn to Code 1, 2, and 3. And, and if you have a chance, your students, I think my students loved Learn to Code 3 because mm-hmm. it, it gave them much more autonomy and they were able to create their own playgrounds and really put some creative tweaks into things. Uh, but we're also going to be doing app development. And next year I'm going to be teaching some of our other students how to do server-side Swift. Okay. So they could do front-end, back-end, all in one language, mm-hmm. which I think leads to um, some very... Uh, open-ended and potentially really powerful software being created because they'll get a very in-depth knowledge of one language and be able to do it all in one language.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. In the computer science exams in Scotland, there's one aspect I think, I haven't taught this course yet, but there's one aspect where you have to, you have to learn a couple of programming languages, but you also have to program server side and client side. So instead of necessarily learning a new language to achieve those, those two parts of the course, you could, as you said, write Swift for one of your programming languages and your server side component, and then learn one other language uh, to go along with it.
0: I highly recommend you just published your article and anybody who's listening, you know, I will have a link in the show notes. Please go read it it is a fantastic overview of your year. Um, and so we've talked about what our thoughts about using Swift as a teaching language, but there are a couple other points that I'd really like to hit home um, from your article, but people should definitely go and read it. Uh, you, th- you found it powerful because every student could get something working, which was a change from other languages you have taught. Yeah. And I I thought that the, one of the... Best points you made is was when you were teaching, you swift you switched to um, being much more active in your teaching rather than offline grading. Can you expand upon that?
1: Yeah, um, I suppose one one of the ways that you you sometimes see computer science classes run is uh, the students get set a problem and the teacher sort of sits back and responds to requests for help, and then marks whatever the students hand in at the end um, and I find that to be that's in some ways that's kind of a wee bit the way that the teacher guide is written in that you're supposed to if you follow the teacher guide to the letter they suggest that you use this app called seesaw and have the students um, upload both uh, their code maybe and a screenshot of the working solution and also some reflections on it. And I found that following the teacher guide to the letter, I was just simply overwhelmed by the number of individual items that students were creating over the course of even a single period. And I don't have a big class. I have a class of uh, 12 or 14. And I was ending up with like 60, 70, 80 different artifacts to have a look at and and see saw and approve approve or not. And that was just overwhelming. So I thought, well, I need to do this a different way. So what I did was I made it uh, so that I would do a little bit of teaching to set up the class as you would normally do, but then in, instead of just kind of letting them get on with it, I would I would be a lot more proactive in asking them to, like going around as they're working and asking them, well, what part are you working on? How do you how do you feel about it? Or do you have any questions? Are you, are you getting on okay? Have you considered this? Have you considered that? And it's that little part that have you considered this? Have you considered that part that... Somebody without a computer science background might not quite have the insight to ask that kind of question, without just saying, "Oh, do it this way." Uh, and I think that's, to me, that's the the value of a computer science teacher is to be able to, um, to to know when to point somebody in a different direction, because I know that there are ten other directions you could take here, and and more, five of them will work, and four of them will fail, and one of them will crash or whatever, um, and that's. That was a very um, very valuable experience in the classroom, I thought, because it meant that um, students started working faster. They spent less time confused. Um, they didn't necessarily have to put their hand up and say they didn't understand it. Um, and I could often catch mis- uh, misconceptions just as they were going. I don't know if you've ever seen this in your classroom, Brian, but I have had a number of students who do this, right? And what they do is they write code And then if it doesn't immediately work, they just delete it all and they start writing different code. And they delete that and write different code. If it doesn't work, they just delete their code and write something else. But they never take the time to understand why was it that this first attempt didn't work? Uh, And certainly not everybody does that, but there was a few people who that was their mentality. And what I was able to do was to kind of almost catch them in the act of making a mistake. And I was able to help them before they destroyed the evidence, if you like. Um, And that was very valuable because... It meant that I could finally get a grip on why does this kid not get this right? And and I saw it was because they didn't understand the the progression of logic or they didn't understand how to write a a two-part conditional statement or something like that or whatever the problem was. But I could catch them doing it before they would delete all the code and put the hand up and say, I don't understand. And I would say, what have you done? And they would say, well, I did some stuff and it didn't work, so I just deleted it all. I'm like, well I'm not a mind reader right I can't I can't tell you what was wrong with code you've deleted so um, let's uh, let's try and catch you with code so that we can then talk about the code at that point so uh, that that practice in the classroom was a lot better and it saved me a lot of time afterwards as well because um, I had seen what people were doing and I was kind of managing people's progression of saying okay you can move on to the next one I want you to try this again I'm going to reset this because you've kind of gone down a wrong path and I, I could manage the classroom that way a little bit easier as well
0: I, I did see similar things in my classroom where kids would, oh, it doesn't work. And I'd say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember, we've had that discussion about debugging. This We're learning here. The point is not just to get something working. It's to learn. And if you learn now, you're going to be able to create more powerful things later. And so the rule I instituted is we have no deletion of code. We'll just comment it out. So I told them the two forward slash, and it turns it green, and you keep it there so that I can see it when I was up moving around. So mm. if you want to write new code and start all over fine, but you comment out what was there before. And yeah, that's, that's what a good we idea. did. The other really great suggestion, I or a piece you had from your article, that uh, if anybody from Apple's listening, this is a good suggestion, is a roadmap for teachers for mm. the Swift curriculum.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- that was kind of the issue with Learn to Code 3. It was that I had already set my year schedule before Learn to Code 3 came out. Uh, so now I've, I didn't have any space to put it in the school year at all. Um, even though I, I could have adjusted things around to to make that possible, but I'd already committed to a certain schedule. Um, so, I, I mean, the, the way I feel about this, right, is that Swift, the actual programming language, is developed in an open source fashion, right? <laughs> Why can't we also uh, develop the training materials in a similar fashion? You know, like the whole, all the issues, all the code, the actual, I mean, I, I was talking on Twitter the other day about um, how to understand the idea of optionals in Swift. And somebody said, why don't you go look at the source code for Swift? And I was like, well, duh, why didn't I think of that? Because you don't think of Apple as being an open source company. But um, if we can do that for the actual language we're teaching, surely we can do it for the teaching materials as well.
0: Just as an aside, I, I, one of the best explanations of optionals in Swift uh, was on, and I'll put it in the show notes, there was an episode of debug with... Um, guy English and he had on Don Melton and they were talking about it and they were talking about it It was like a three part, probably six or eight hour podcast. And they were talking about him working for Steve jobs, but, uh, I'll find that and put that in the show notes. It was a really, I thought it, it helped solidify optionals for me. Um, but, uh, just word to the wise, uh, it is not a child friendly podcast with some of their salty language.
1: Yeah. (laughs) He's retired. now.
0: He doesn't care. (laughs) You no, know, he doesn't. And I, he had a great suggestion uh, for anybody out there in the workforce. He said, you never want to be the most colorful person in the room, which is hard for me sometimes, <laughs> So, <laughs> especially when it comes to your language. Yeah. All right. Uh, if, if a school is considering starting to teach a SWIFT or computer science or coding, what suggestions do you have for that school district or teacher?
1: Well, I, I suppose my my glib answer is find yourself a computer scientist and hire them. I mean, I'm I'm intensely aware of how difficult that is to do in the current climate because you know people with computer programming skills are so valuable that uh, I often make the joke. You know, what do you call a teacher who can code? An ex teacher is the answer, uh, very quickly afterwards. Um, but exactly. I, I still feel that the, the subject of computer science is a discipline worthy of study in its own right, but I recognize the challenges in hiring that skill set in school. Um, what I think is that the the Apple teacher guides are a very good safety net so that there's a floor below which basically nobody can fall. If you have uh, if you have a sort of numerate teacher, you know, a math teacher or a physics teacher or something... Um, who can follow the the teacher guide, you're going to have a pretty reasonable experience. And certainly you're going to have a better experience than no coding class at all, right? That's the worst coding experience of all. Um, But I still feel that the the most fulfilling parts of the learning experience, those debates and discussions about the kind of, the more in-depth software engineering and computer science issues um, would be pretty challenging for a teacher who didn't have a background in computer science. So I think it's just to be aware of like what are you going to get? Right, You're, you're not going to give the teach, Apple Teacher Guides to any random teacher in your school and get like a, a university preparatory computer science curriculum in your school. That's not going to happen. But what you will get is you'll get people to have a certain appreciation for the idea of, I mean, what you might achieve at that point is like a kind of awareness of the idea of computational thinking for example, right? So you might use Swift playgrounds and and learn to code one and two just to deliver the idea of thinking like a computer. We actually do that slightly different way. We use, there's a course called Pixar in a Box, which is part of Khan Academy. uh, And we use that course to articulate the concepts around a bit computational thinking. And then we transfer that into, firstly, uh, using Hopscotch in the iPad to an actual block-based computer programming course. And then from there, into what eventually these kids will move into and learn to code one and two in the year after that. So that's, that's roughly what we, our progression is. And I think that's quite strong because you have the, the thinking training first, and then you have block-based programming. So you can apply those thoughts without having to learn syntax. And then having done that, you can then take the idea of some of the the coding skills and turn them into, you know, actual text-based code. And then you can start to really start to go from there
0: do you think you're gonna keep using hopscotch have you looked at the new tinker implementation with Swift um, I know I looked at it, I thought it was was really excellent the way you can go from block based to Swift or you're gonna stick with what you know works
1: I, I'm certainly open to changing that I, I, I have downloaded both the tinker app and the new the two new guides these are the ones called uh, get started with code I think one and two and I haven't been through them all yet. I've been through part of one so far, but I'm certainly open to using that as our our basis if if they articulate well with the later levels as well.
0: Well, Fraser, I know that uh, you do a few podcasts, and you're so you're a big fan of podcasts. I mm-hmm. am too. So, what are your favorite podcasts?
1: So one of my absolute favorite podcasts is sadly just finished, uh, which is uh, the show Control Walt Delete with Walt Mossberg and Neil Patel from The Verge. Uh, I was I thought that was just an outstanding show, and I'm I'm desperately sorry to see it go. Uh, as most uh, Walt Mossberg has just retired from everything, and the the show is changing as well. Uh, that, that was one of my favorites and it's, I think it's still valuable to go back and l- look at the archive of that podcast. It's something I always kind of want from my own podcast is to have a, an archive of shows that people go back to again and again. Um, I love the show Cortex with CGP Grey and Mike Hurley. Uh, that's I, I see far too much of myself in that show, but it's true. I'm a big fan of, of a show called The West Wing Weekly, uh, which is a recap podcast about the show The West Wing, um, which I probably have seen through maybe eight times now. Uh, a little bit ashamed to admit that, but uh, I'm a fan of that show. Uh, and I've recently just picked up a new podcast, which is is an excellent show called um, Fifty Things That Made the Modern Economy, and this comes from the BBC World Service, and it's it's fifty nine minute shows about technologies and and developments that have brought about our modern world so it's things like passports intellectual property um what else do they do Uh, i'm blanking on the names of any others but basically like refrigeration and air conditioning and things like that all the things that we kind of depend on to, to have our modern world and it's just an excellent little kind of snack podcast that you can you, you can grab one and, and chew on it for a while. It's really good fun.
0: That sounds – there is one that uh, – a non-tech one that I love. It's called uh, Freakonomics Radio mm-hmm. by the economist that – one of the co-writers of uh, uh, Freakonomics. Unusual way to have economics look at the world. So it's the Freakonomics Radio podcast. And I've learned so much there. Uh, and then things I've just never thought about um, – when it comes to how economics affects different things in the world and really encompasses a lot of them. So that's, that's a fun one if you are, are interested just for something really some deep thought okay. and deep dive on different topics. Fraser, where can people find you and your work online? Okay, well, I've already mentioned
1: uh, one of the shows that I do, which is called Out of School, which is a podcast about technology and education. Uh, That's at outofschool.net, and I I co-host that with Bradley Chambers. Uh, Usually weekly, but over the summer, we we tend to have a slightly less regular schedule. Um, And then every two weeks, I do a show called Canvas with Federico Vitici from maxstories.net. And that is a show dedicated to teaching people how to do things on their iPad, basically. Uh, What we do is every two weeks, we take a topic, uh, not an app as such, but a, a practice or a skill or Just an area of work that people often say to us, like the whole idea of the show was people often said, oh, you can't do this or this on an iPad. And we were like, yes, you can. Do you not know about these five ways of doing it? And the answer was always, no, I didn't know about those five ways of doing it. So what we do is we try to take things like note taking or doing a presentation or uploading and downloading files from the web. So we we try and make it... um, use case based rather than app based we have also done a big series on the app workflow which is a very important app i know you're a big fan um and that's a really .fm slash canvas and we do that once every every two weeks as well i'm also on twitter at freezer spears and i have a blog at spears.org as well
0: oh you had to bring up workflow didn't you (laughs) we could do a whole other episode on that if you want Oh, my gosh. What you guys, What was your, uh, was it like a five-part or six-part series? It was excellent. I,
1: I think we did, we did five, yeah, and then we went back and did one more.
0: Yeah, and you finished that last one on Magic Variables, and then what was like a month later or a few weeks later, boom, it sold to Apple. Yeah, that was uh, acquired true. Acquired it. Yep, yeah. Let's hope for the best. Yes. Because I... Yes. I so much of what I do, I could not do without workflow. No, I, I'm a big fan of it too. Alright, well Fraser, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to me today and share with us your uh, thoughts about computer science and teaching coding sure. and Swift. And uh, I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, anytime. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a rating in Apple Podcasts and all of the things mentioned here, or as many as I can get down, will be in the show notes in your podcast of choice or can be found on swiftteacher.org slash podcast time to get swifty